Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The pandemic era has been full of trauma and grief for millions of Americans whose loved ones have died of COVID. And for many African-Americans who were hard hit by the crisis, the season of sorrow has seemed endless. In her new book, author Marissa Renee Lee shares her own story of grief and finding joy in a time of loss. Give yourself some time, you know, like to just sit and ask yourself, what do I need? What might help me move through this? I'm a meditation person. I am a church girl. I do therapy. I have my things that I know help me live with loss. The author of Grief is Love coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. On any given day, a friend, a colleague, or anyone you know could be dealing with grief. The fog of sorrow and sometimes anger and regret after the death of a loved one is a universal experience, but so often a lonely one. Even in the wake of a global pandemic, when millions endured repeated losses and isolation, many of us lack the language for describing our own grief for helping others through theirs. Marissa Renee Lee is hoping to change that. She's an author, speaker, and entrepreneur who's written for The Atlantic, Vogue, The Griot, and Glamour. And her new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, is out now. Marissa, welcome to A Word. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to start with this. My best friend uh, passed away on New Year's Eve after a long struggle with sickle cell. So This was both helpful and I was like both dreading and looking forward to this conversation. You know, the the experience of grief is very personal to you. Can you just talk a little bit about what inspired you to write Grief is Love, Living with Loss? You know, I think looking back, my grief journey probably started when I was 13 years old. My mom, who had otherwise been a healthy, super engaged, active parent, you know, job, Sunday school teacher, every field trip, chaperone, you know, just super involved and engaged. One day she got sick and she never got better. And it turned out she had multiple sclerosis. And then as I was graduating from college, she became very ill, which is a weird thing to say after, you know, a decade of battling MS. But um, she was just in and out of the hospital having all of these challenges. Doctors told her that 
they thought it was in her head, frankly, you know, the classic what happens to black women in particular. And she persisted and ultimately was seen by a doctor who was also a family friend. And he realized that in addition to her MS, my mom had cancer in her bones. And after consulting with an oncologist, we learned that it was stage four breast cancer. And so a couple of days before graduating from Harvard, I learned my mom was actively dying. And I will never forget being in this little oncologist office in upstate New York, my senior week in college with my mom and my dad and my godmother, <clears throat> you know, all trying to figure out what's going on with her. And when the doctor took her hand and placed it on her left breast and said, can you feel that? And she said, yes. You know, it was like the world kind of opened up beneath my feet. You know, the stability that I had previously taken for granted was suddenly taken away. And I didn't know what to do. So I did what I do. I got organized. I started making lists. I started doing research. And I became, you know, sort of the CEO of my mother's illness and end-of-life care and eventually of her death. She passed away about two and a half years later in my childhood home with myself and my father and some other family members there by her side. And I I thought that because I was so prepared, you know, because I never denied the fact that she was dying, I thought when she died, I was going to be okay. You know, I felt like I was ahead of the game. You know, my dad might fall apart. My sister might fall apart. But like, I was solid because I was prepared and I knew what was happening and I read all the books and did all the things. And then it actually happened and I was lost. Like I've never known pain like that. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I was frankly embarrassed and I felt ashamed for having all of these feelings about a dead parent, which is a relatively ordinary life occurrence. I was just 25 at the time and didn't want to tell anyone how much I was struggling because I thought there was something wrong with me. And so I tried to bury it and ignore it and just, you know, keep on keeping on and white knuckled my way through that grief experience with daily panic attacks in the basement of the investment bank that I worked at at the time. And eventually, you know, made my way through the worst of it but not by really doing anything to help myself. You know, it was it was miserable, but eventually, you know, I made my way to DC, started working for President Obama, I met a guy, I got married, you know, did all the things, have this wonderful life and we struggled with infertility, but eventually found ourselves pregnant and, you know, happy beyond belief. And then we lost the pregnancy in August of 2019. And I realized in that moment, you know, on the floor of our bathroom, trying to just fit my body on the bath mat, physically sicker than I'd ever been in my life, scared, confused, alone, like full of grief, that all I wanted was my mom, you know, this woman who'd been dead for over a decade. And I realized through that experience that I hadn't gotten over the loss of my mom, that in some ways I hadn't moved on from it. And I needed to figure out, you know, both what that meant and also, you know, what it meant to now be in this place of loss around this hope that my husband and I had for a future 
that now wasn't going to be realized. You know, we didn't have another plan for how we were going to grow our family. This was kind of our last shot. And I had to navigate all of that grief at the end of 2019 and into 2020. And then we were in the pandemic, sitting in this place of like global grief. So for me, the book was inspired by both my personal experiences and then the experience of grief and suffering and trauma that we all went through together in 2020 and 2021 and continuing now. One of the things when you you talk about these sort of different stages that you went through from feeling that you were okay and and this whole idea of being the the CEO because you knew it was coming of your mother's death. And I, I had a very similar experience. I had dreams. I had a sense at the beginning of 2021 that my best friend was not going to live. And so I just had it in my head that I was like, every time I see him, we're just going to talk about fun stuff because I know he's he's unhappy being in this hospital and I know he's unhappy. We were the same age. And I thought I could happy us out of it. And that does not work. What do you say to those people who are trying to find a way to prepare for something that they know is inevitable, but will nonetheless bring them to their knees? What would you say to people who are doing what I was doing at this point last year or what you were doing you know, over a decade ago when you were 24, 25 years old? I think the most important thing, honestly, is for them to do what they can to sort of fortify themselves and to care for themselves and to you know, love themselves, which may seem counterintuitive. You know, you would think the advice would be all around the person who's no longer going to be here. But what I have learned from, frankly, mostly not taking care of myself when these hard things happen, and, you know, when I know they're coming, is that the only thing that can make moving through the worst of grief, you know, those early days, weeks, months, when you are just so completely overwhelmed by the pain is to start from a place of health and wholeness as much as possible. You know, like, and I also think that when we are, when we are able to pour into and care for ourselves, you know, however that looks for you, we are more able to be there for others. You know, like, I think if I had taken the time out to really take care of Marissa, might I have been able to show up for my mother in a different way? I don't want to say better because, you know, it is what it is, but might I have been able to show up for her in a way that was fuller and felt more comfortable to me sometimes? And I think, yes, you know, it is, death is one of those things that as much as we try to prepare There is no adequate preparation for losing someone you love, someone who you consider, you know, one of yours, like your parent, your best friend, your spouse, your sibling. And so I think just being mindful of taking care of yourself so that you can really be present at the end and, you know, be present for what comes next is really important. You talked about the five stages of grief that we got that from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I did not know that the five stages of grief were written for the person dying. They were never actually written for the living. And you point out that we've now adopted this, that the living are supposed to go through those five stages of grief, even though that's that's not what the original intent was. Tell me a little bit about that and and how that differs, how the five stages of grief 
It wasn't written for us. It wasn't written for those of us who have to survive. It is honestly one of the worst games of telephone that I ever heard of. When I uncovered that in my research, and you know, I was very fortunate in this book to work with a Harvard professor and bereavement expert, Dr. Christy Dankla. She opened up my eyes to so many things that helped me to recognize that while everyone's experience with grief is unique, there are some elements about how grief lands in the body and, you know, grief's impact on the brain that are universal. But the first thing that she told me was, yeah, those five stages, they're not for us. And even in that context, she makes very clear that the stages are not something that are considered to be linear. So if someone is listening to this and they are, you know, unfortunately dealing with the grief of, you know, approaching their own end of life, know that those five stages, yes, they do apply to you, but this is not like the 12 steps program in AA or, you know, the developmental milestones that I'm looking for in my eight month old baby. It's not sequential. It's more these are the things that most commonly come up for people when they are, you know, sadly preparing to die. And I think getting rid of these dated notions around grief and loss, grief being on some sort of a timeline, the fact that, you know, people tend so often to associate grief solely with, you know, the days and maybe first two weeks after you lose someone you love, that's just not what it is. You know, I'm sitting here 14 years out and even according to my therapist, I'm a pretty healthy individual overall, mentally and emotionally, but I still have moments of grief. You know, like there were times when this book came out and, you know, I was getting ready to do all of these things and put this story out into the world when I just really missed my mom. And that's okay because grief is the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. When you think about this concept of moving on, and I get really worked up about it because I spent so many years thinking I had moved on and trying to move on and you know, feeling embarrassed and ashamed because I still loved and missed this woman who raised me. Like I don't want other people to make that same mistake. Like You are not crazy if you still feel sad or angry or anything else you might be experiencing because you lost someone you love. You are normal. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on Marissa Renee Lee's new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking with Marissa Renee Lee about her new book, Grief is Love Living with Loss. Marissa, you have this 
sort of interesting concept in your book where you say that America is a, a grief-averse society. Here we are during a pandemic. What do you mean by America is grief-averse? In American culture, in American society, we love to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, and that extends to our emotions as well. There is no real space given to pause, to reflect, to mourn, to celebrate the life of a loved one who's no longer here outside of, you know, the funeral. Like beyond that, you're expected to just keep going. And I do think, you know, the idea of continuing to move forward, even in like tiny ways and taking sort of cautious steps after you lose someone you love is right. You know, like we are still here. We do have to find a way to move forward, but we need to do that in a way that honors our humanity as well. And and we don't leave space for that. You know, the number of companies that have bereavement leave policies, it would shock you how rare it is. But in this country, we don't really, we don't really value care. And we're seeing this in so many different ways. You know, we saw it when all of these women were forced to leave the workforce in the midst of the pandemic, because there's no, there's no social safety net, you know, there's no backup plan. If something is happening in the world, and your child can no longer go to daycare, you're still expected to work. You know, we don't, we talk a lot about the care economy, and, you know, the need to provide more supports to people who are in jobs that take care of the rest of us, you know, whether we're talking about daycare providers, or, you know, I think about my grandmother's like home health aid, like those types of of positions, but like we don't actually do it. Like they aren't valued. We don't put any sort of premium on care. And because of that, and because of our inability to just just let people be sad sometimes, we have a really hard time attacking grief in America. If you had the ear of the CDC, if you had the ear of this current administration, what would you suggest to them? I mean, Joe Biden gets a lot of credit for being good at talking about grief. He lost family, right? What would you tell them to tell America about the grieving that we're doing or that we're not being given the time to do during this pandemic? I really believe, you know, and, and I think this, obviously, I come from the Obama administration, so we know my political persuasion. But I think regardless of your politics, you have to respect President Biden's grief experiences and his ability to lead us through this time of grief based on the things that have happened in his life. You know, I don't I think that should sort of be baseline without question. And he needs to be talking about it more. You know, I know from having worked in the Obama White House that there is a lot when you're in that building that you want to do and you can't do because being in the executive branch successfully means also being able to work with the other branches of government, right? And, and we know, you know, I still live in the D.C. area, tons of dysfunction. Washington is a mess. Everyone says it. Everyone agrees with it, et cetera, et cetera. But what I also know from being there is there is real power in the presidency, in like the pulpit that he has, like in his ability to reach people and to galvanize people to do things differently, to think differently, to respond in a different way. And I am really eager to see him do that. 
We're going to take a short break. We come back more with Marissa Renee Lee about Black Grief. Her new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, is out now. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Marissa Renee Lee about Black Grief. Her new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, is out now. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and this is the medical professional's guide to like mental illness, recognize something called prolonged grief disorder. And there's like a debate as to whether that's a step forward or if we're just stigmatizing grief. Here we are talking about this idea of how this country isn't particularly sensitive to grief. What do you think of this idea of of a medical diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder and what that might mean if we were to sort of mainstream that idea. There's a lot of hubbub in the grief space around this new diagnostic category. Here's what I will say. And keep in mind, I am generally described as an optimist. You know, the DSM is controversial. This is the same body that said that homosexuality was a disease, you know, 70 or so years ago. So I think we need to go into any kind of examination of whether this is good or bad with the full context that it is sort of a controversial body overall. You know, I think in a country that as we've discussed, that is so committed to capitalism and white supremacy I think that giving therapists, who I know from conversations with my own therapist, an opportunity to bill for something that people are dealing with, my hope is that this leads to more people being able to access the care that they need to move through their grief and heal from their losses, if it is you know, a prolonged grief situation. My concern is the same concern that we all have, that it causes further stigmatization, you know, that folks will throw this diagnosis out without really examining a person more broadly. And so, you know, I I would hope that therapists would use this as a way to help as many people as possible and be thoughtful and intentional about it. But I think it's it's a wait and see situation. And, you know, my my deeper hope is just that it it allows for more people to get the care that they need because there now is that compensation mechanism built in, which for better or worse, that's the way our country's healthcare system is set up. What's your advice to those of us who, if someone comes to you to share grief, how do you help people without it re-traumatizing you, without it absorbing you, you know? How can you help others with their grief when you might still be dealing with your own? So first of all, I am a big put on your oxygen mask before assisting others, as hard as it is for me as a person who was a caretaker for a really long time, who's now a caretaker again as a mom. It's it's really hard, but it does make a difference. So if you are still like deep in your own grief, you frankly may not have the capacity to show up for someone else. And I think it's okay to say that, you know, like to name that because there is, there is some community that is built even just in saying like, I know you're struggling right now. I am so sorry, but I am still 
broken by the loss of my best friend. So I sent you an Uber Eats gift card. And that gets to the second part of my answer, which is take an action. What I will tell you is there are tons of people, probably hundreds at this point, between my mom's death, my cousin's death, and the loss of our pregnancy, who have said things that are not helpful. But I don't remember them very well. You know, like I can't tell you who said the stupid thing when my mom died or, you know, asked if we'd heard of adoption when we had our pregnancy loss. And, you know, like I don't remember who exactly said that, but what I will never forget is who didn't show up, who I expected to show up. So even if you don't have the capacity to be there for someone emotionally, take some tangible action to help them, to remove something from their plate. So if you're in a place where you do have capacity, make them a meal, babysit their kid, take their dog for a walk, make sure you put the birthday of their person and the anniversary of the person's death in your calendar so that you can check up on them when those dates come in the future. Be sure to check in on them when great things happen. You know, one of the hardest days for me was taking my family to the Oval Office for pictures with President Obama, which, you know, you get to do that as a departing White House staffer and my mom not being there. Like, so, so you know, remember them when everything is going great in life, because that also can sometimes be a moment of grief for people. But I, I am all about like taking an action because, you know, when you think about in other contexts, how we show people that we love them, how we show people that we care about them, we tend to do something. And so I think grief, people feel different about it because, you know, it's overwhelming. People don't know what to say. They're worried about saying the wrong thing. You know, there's just all of this other emotion surrounding it. But just go back to what it means to just show someone that you love them. You know, I'll never forget when we lost our pregnancy. I mean, our house looked like a funeral parlor. It was so full of flowers and I love whiskey. So there were all these fancy bottles of whiskey and nice bottles of wine being sent, you know, because of course now I can definitely drink again. And one of my girlfriends sent a box of cheese and like other snacks from Murray's Cheese Shop in the West Village in New York. It was always one of our favorite places. We love cheese. We would always do like cheese plates together. And receiving that it just made me feel really seen. You know, like it was unique to me and her and our relationship. And all she had to do was spend five minutes on a website. So like take those kinds of actions that maybe aren't particularly taxing for you, but they really do help people feel seen and loved. I got to ask this just sort of in closing, because I thought this was a particularly moving thing. You talked about the idea of giving people permission and giving people permission to grieve. I've heard about giving people permission to go, and I had that experience because sometimes people are just holding on because they're worried about who's gonna be left and, and telling them it's okay, telling mom, your friend, or whoever of 20 or 30 years, like, you can go, we're gonna be fine. It's amazing how often they'll go right after you give them permission. What about giving people permission? There's somebody right now who's grieving, who's listening to this show, how can others or how can they give themselves permission to grieve? Just tell us a little bit as we close on, on that, that idea of giving yourself or giving others permission to grieve. When I sat down to write the final version of this book, I wanted to really think about 
what enables me to live a full life with, you know, my hot pink wall and my dog and my husband and my baby and vacations and cakes and rainbows and whatever in the midst of still carrying, you know, this loss of my mother, who's so essential to who I am. And I realized that a big part of it, and I hope it's okay for me to say this the way I'm going to say it, but a big part of it was just not giving a fuck what other people thought about the fact that I still get sad sometimes, or I might feel angry or, you know, feel some kind of way about this woman not being here. And, and I realized that so much of what kept me stuck and not able to fully process the loss of my mother was feeling judged and feeling shame around just having all of these feelings. And so I, so I was like, oh, so I give myself permission to feel however I'm going to feel and to do whatever I need to do and, you know, to not work on her birthday and the anniversary of her passing to, you know, maybe indulge in a little bit of extra retail therapy during the month in February where both her birthday and her death day sit, you know, like I give myself permission to celebrate, to, you know, bake things that remind me of her. And I was like, oh, this all comes down to just permission. Like we need to give ourselves permission to be however we need to be, to access whatever we need to access, to tend to our grief. And so I think if you are listening and you are currently grieving, just give yourself some time, you know, like to just sit and ask yourself, what do I need? What might help me move through this? I'm a meditation person. I am a church girl. I do therapy. I have my things that I know help me live with loss. Like give yourself permission to have all of these feelings and give yourself permission to access whatever it is you need to access to heal. And when it comes to giving permission to somebody else, I think so much of it is in the little ways that we hold space for one another. You know, like whether it's someone now that I'm in this new life transition moment with this baby, people asking about my baby, even in a work context, like that gives me permission to show up as my full self, which is, you know, writer, entrepreneur, former Obama staffer and tired mom. And so I think we need to do the same when it comes to grief, you know, remembering to just ask someone how they're doing and then really listen to the answer. We need to offer up more compassion and empathy right now because so many people are hurting and you can't tell just by looking at someone if they're grieving or if they're, you know, even just having a bad day about a loss that was a long time ago. So just be prepared to really listen to people when they tell you how they're doing. Ask them about their people. Ask them if they've thought about, you know, one of my best friends, he said, you know, you're so good about bringing your mom with you wherever you go. What does it look like for you to include her in this book tour, in this book launch? I still haven't figured out an answer, but the question just it made me feel seen and it reminded me of my mom and I love being reminded of my mom. And so I, th I think that of like that, just giving people space peace and showing up in little ways in the sort of everyday kind of mundane parts of life is really important. 
Marissa Renee Lee is a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. Her new book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss, is out now. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This was really lovely. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.